sensitive information from key companies, including Alcoa and Westinghouse. Beijing denies all such allegations. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Big banks. The impossible takes two days, and miracles take three. Where you've got so many different departments and divisions shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Good morning to you. This is the breaking business news on RTHK Radio 3's Money for Nothing, and it's Tuesday, the 11th of August. I'm Richard Harris. Your business headlines this morning. It's the gunfight of the OK Corral. September bang, December bang. Fed governors battle it out in public over interest rates. Markets start the week on a tear, green across the board. Shanghai surges 5% on merger talk and Google restructures to make it easier for investors to understand the company. And in other news, as Money for Nothing hinted yesterday, Warren Buffett bags his elephant. He bought precision cast parts for a jumbo, 35 billion US dollars. Today we take you around the world, China logistics, US central bankers, global steelmakers, and even, finally, to the last frontier, and quite possibly beyond. First up is William Marr of Gotex Penjing Asset Management, and he's the best man to run us through the markets, what's hot and what's not. Then in our industry segment, we speak to Paul Bartholomew of Platts Research, who will give us the inside track on the latest developments in the steel industry. Last up, we blast off. We look at the business of outer space with Professor Stephen Freeland of the University of Western Sydney on the new commercial opportunities for small satellites. But first, the business news. It's a gunfight among central bankers. First, Alabama Fed Governor Dennis Lockhart comes out favouring a rise of rates in September and says this. From my perspective, September remains a live possibility. Uh, I can't predict how the committee will come out or even what each member of the committee or each participant of the committee will use as criteria for making a decision. But my purpose today was to to make the point that we have come a long way in the economy and that I think that progress should be taken into consideration in determining uh, when we're ready for uh, a change in policy. Then up comes Stanley Fisher, former IMF president and now deputy Fed governor, one below Janet Yellen. He's still in favour of accommodative monetary policy. Well, ultra-accommodative was set at a time when we thought that zero was as low as you could go on interest rates, so it couldn't be any more accommodative than the zero we're effectively at. Uh, now we know you can go negative as well. Uh, But it is extremely, extremely accommodative to not have to pay interest, nominal interest to be sure, uh, when uh, you make an investment. And that's what this monetary policy is about, and it has worked. Okay, so what does he really want for rates to go up? Employment has been rising pretty fast relative to previous performance. And uh, yet inflation is very low. And the concern about uh, this situation is not to move before we see inflation as well as employment returning to more normal uh, levels, levels which we specified in advance. So he wants inflation. And that's the one thing that another former Fed governor feared. Of course, Fed governors come in threes on money for nothing. So now we have the wisdom from a 90-year-old Alan Greenspan. Uh, He's pretty concerned. I think we have a pending bond market bubble. If we merely substitute 
the uh, structure of equity prices, and we have the price of bonds, and instead of expected equity return, we do have expected interest rate return. That price earnings ratio is an extraordinarily unstable position. So he's looking at the relationship between bonds versus equities. Basically, low interest rates mean high bond prices. That's why I think it's, it's in a bubble. Uh, and that also pushes equity up. I'm going to play some more of Alan Greenspan because he describes the situation quite wisely and very clearly. I would say you merely ask yourself what determines interest rates fundamentally and its human time preference. It's the extent to which we discount future values. You know, one obvious case is take a look at people standing in line for a new Apple computer a year or so ago. Uh, what would they sell? What would they pay to get a position farther, closer to delivery date? Mm -hmm. That is human time preference. But human time preference is best measured by interest rates. Interest rates going all the way back in human history, as far back as we can get it, have not been significantly different from where they are in the pre-2008. So interest rates, uh, he's saying, are a measurement of the desire to consume now rather than later. But he then asks himself the key question. And to ask ourselves, where is the normal interest rate? Right. And, uh, one of the things that occurred to me as a consequence of the 2008 crisis, which uh, I knew something was brewing, but I missed the actual date, as in, frankly did everybody else. Something very fundamentally different was going on. And I went back and looked at what my premises were about the way the system worked, and I found that there are very significantly different problems that behavioral economics is really covering. And this particular question on where the optimum interest rate is, is a behavioral issue. So that's interesting. 90-year-old Alan Greenspan is now looking at behavioral economics to explain a lot of these things. Behavioral economics talks about the emotions in markets rather than fundamentals. And fundamentals was something he really relied on throughout most of his career. Anyway, to clear all of this up, let's bring in our first guest, uh, William Ma, who's the Chief Investment Officer of Gotik's Penjing Asset Management. Good morning, William. Morning. Uh, good to see you this morning. Now, it sounds to me as if Alan Greenspan wants rates to go up. Yeah, but I think um, actually um, people are expecting and it seems his view is kind of uh, in line with what the people in the region in Asia is expecting. And as you can see, the uh, currency in the emerging market is having a deep pressure um, this year. Uh, some would say it's kind of like the 97 and I think investors are getting quite conservative because of the expectation of rate increase in the U.S., are we in a situation, do you think, of uh, it's uh, better to travel than to arrive? Or maybe in this case, it's not better to travel because the anticipation, certainly in Asia, is relatively negative for rates going up. Yes, um, I think it's a global phenomenon, <clears throat> phenomenon if you like. Um, if you talk to European and U.S. investors, actually we are seeing them redeeming, if not a kind of pulling capital from the emerging market. So the rate high, the dollar strengthening is clearly a negative uh, uh, catalyst uh, for, for the region. So if they're pulling capital from emerging markets or, or from our region, where's it going? 
um, uh, the obvious choice is um, back to their home country, which uh, a bulk of it is back to the United States. Um, although if you look at the index performance year to day, actually the S&P is uh, not going anywhere. But however, when, when you talk to some of the bigger allocators, it seems from that perspective, they, they prefer um, to be still up. Um, cautiously optimistic on their own country instead of you know putting money back to the emerging markets. Okay, stay with us, William. Uh, we'll have some more news. U.S. and European stocks started positively in the week as mergers and acquisition news in the U.S. and China underpinned the markets. The S&P was up 1.3% to 2,104. Uh, after news, Warren Buffett is paying 33 billion for engineer precision cast parts. As Buffett thinks, so do we. Wall Street's rebound left it just 2.5% shy, in fact, of its record high, despite declining in five of the past six trading days. The Shanghai Composite jumped nearly 5%, 4.9%, in fact, yesterday to 3,928, taking on the view the poor economic news announced over the weekend only made it more likely that Beijing would introduce further stimulus. Traders got excited about government restructuring uh, of combining two major sh- uh, state-owned shipping companies, Costco and China Shipping. Um, William, the other thing I noticed is that China's reduced its holdings of U.S. Treasury by about 10 percent, by about 180 billion U.S. dollars. But the U.S. Treasury markets barely reacted. Yes. um, If you look at the the size, actually, um, I think it's not that significant. And also, if you uh, try to understand the top priority of the Chinese government, um, actually, it's the renminbi internationalization and interest rate liberalization. And I think reducing the holdings in the Treasury would uh, move that step closer to their long-term target. Uh, in the European markets, uh, the index jumped 1% to 3,675. We hope to bring you news of a Greek rescue package tomorrow. The only one of the 15 main markets full yesterday was Hong Kong, which closed down just a touch, uh, ended the day at 24,521. The Hong Kong government's inflation-linked bonds rose more than 5% on its first trading day. Chinese online retail giant Alibaba said, said it will invest 4.6 billion US dollars in electronics retailer Suning to combine their strengths in both online and offline commerce. Suning has about 1,600 shops uh, in 289 Chinese cities, and customers would be able to browse electronics in its stores before purchasing the item on Alibaba's site Tmall. Um, This is quite interesting, William. It's almost a combination of – it's almost a first, in a way, of a large online retailer also going into bricks and mortar and maybe using the two – in combination, until now, it's almost, they've almost been competing. Exactly. <clears throat> I think it's an interesting development, if you like. Um, before that, if you look at the U.S. model, actually the online shops or companies, they are taking advantage of the you know, shops with physical locations so that you know, the customer can go and touch and feel and then they buy it online. But what Alibaba is doing is the exactly opposite. However, if you look at their second quarter uh, latest result, uh, almost half of their sales is coming from mobile phone sales. So I think it's a good combination that people can go and touch and feel and then they place order directly from their Alibaba website. So from my perspective, it's a win-win situation. Seems to make sense because they're also talking about uh, if there are problems with the product, then they can take in physically into Suning stores. Yes, we we are human beings, aren't we? So we really want to test it out and then ask people and talk to people. And these things always go wrong, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Anyway, breaking news at this time is that Google is changing its corporate structure in order to make clearer the difference between its main business and longer-term endeavors. The founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, will be taking on more strategic roles. The new innovative company will be called Alphabet. 
Google's been criticised for wasting money on speculative projects that cost a great deal of money with little payback, and they're known to the market as moonshots. Anyway, it's now 8.14. Well, that's a little bit of uh, heavy metal, and um, we're going to speak about steel now, because last time he was on this show, Paul Bartholomew, who's the managing editor of Plants Research in Australia, said that steel was cheaper than cabbage. Well, to see if that's still the case, we've asked him back. Hello, Paul. Yeah, hi, Richard. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, tell us, we've been quite bearish about steel over the last, well, maybe a couple of years, but the latest figures seem to be just slightly more positive. Um, yeah, that's right. So we, we, we conduct this uh, monthly survey of, of basically sentiment in the Chinese steel sector. So it's just really asking them, you know, how do they see demand and prices looking out uh, over the month ahead? And, uh, yeah, it was a lot more, lot more positive um, in, the, in, the, in the latest one than it was um, the month before. I think it sort of rebounded by about, you know, 28 points um, from July. So I think, yes, I think probably steel is a bit more expensive than cabbage at the moment. So it has actually sort of rebounded. But I think... Um, it, you know, a lot of, there's a several factors. I think, um, you know, one of the things is this uh, Victory Day parade that they're having in Beijing in September. That's probably, there's a lot of rumours that they're going to, um, you know, stop um, stop construction work around Beijing. So that's pulled forward a few orders, which has um, underpinned prices a bit. And that, um, you know, some of these steel makers in Hebei province might be asked to cut production. And there's a couple of other factors. So I think, you know, combined, there's a, there's a bit of sort of, you know, market chatter. So that's sort of, that's helped, uh, you know, improve sentiment and it's just, um, you know, lift, lift prices so people have, you know, pulled forward, their, pulled forward their orders a bit. Now, one swallow doesn't make a summer. Is this improvement likely to be sustainable, do you think? Uh, no, probably not. Um, I think you know under, underlying demand is still fairly weak. Um, I mean, we saw the uh, you know the manufacturing data come out recently. That that was sort of very poor, particularly for you know some of the smaller um, privately owned. And I think one good sort of um, well, one interesting statistic is the fact that you know crude steel production. Um, between January and July this year is, is sort of down, but China's steel exports, uh, you know, have sort of have jumped massively again. So it, that just sort of indicates that, you know, the lack of um, domestic demand. So I think even the people that we talk to in the market themselves are not expecting this, you know, re so-called recovery to, you know, to be sustained. And I think they're expecting sort of prices to, uh, you know, come off again, you know, once we get, so, you know, probably into September. Mm. William, uh, you uh, obviously look at China and uh, some of the sectors there. What's your view on sort of the industrials and all, maybe even the steel sector? Yeah, I think um, I kind of agree in terms of the short to medium term <coughs> kind of internal demand. It, it has been quite weak. And um, I think in the longer run, we, we are still focusing on maybe the high speed wheel rate network building because um, in terms of stimulus, I think infrastructure is one of the key for, for everyone to, to uh, deploy capital. Mm. Um, Paul, the steel industry has been consolidating in China, I believe. Um, how does how that impact the market domestically? Uh, because very often these things leave, if you like, depressed areas, depressed regions, um, and also quite big bills to pay. 
Yeah, I mean, they, they, you know, the, gov- the government and, and you know, they, uh, have really wanted to, you know, have tried to sort of con- consolidate the sector. I think there was pro- probably more sort of going on there, you know, maybe around about 2007, 8, 9 than, than there is now. It seems to sort of slow down. I mean, it's very difficult to, to, you know, to force two steel companies to, to merge. They might, um, you know, have different kinds of technologies. There, ha- there hasn't really been much, too much consolidation for a while. I think, I think one of the things we're finding, though, particularly if you look at the you know, the sort of property price does. And when I, when I talk to, you know, companies that are operating in different parts of China, it's still very much, you know, a lot of the activity, a lot of the, um, is still pretty much down the coast. So even though the Chinese government have been talking a lot about building out central China and then sort of heading further west, uh, you know, the, 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 there's a, the investment in there and, you know, the activity, you know, New, new buildings and stuff has, you know, not been at the pace that um, certainly hasn't been at the steel intensity, uh, you know, has mm. down the sort of coast. So I think that's, that's sort of been a bit um, disappointing. But, you know, the property is still, property construction accounts for 50% of Chinese steel demand. And, uh, you know, again, it still seems to be the sort of tier one cities down the coast that are sort of doing okay. But if, even if you look into, you know, central central China, some of those provinces are still very, very sort of lackluster. So you're just not getting that demand. You've still got that uh, overhang of uh, supply of empty apartments that's really weighing down on the sector so you really need that to sort of improve but you know there's there's, there's quite a long sort of tail there i think before mm. things really sort of pick up where are the you said uh, exports were picking up uh, where are the exports going yeah so things like um, long steel which is basically the you know the, the steel you see sticking out of uh, cement for used in construction most of most of that from china goes into the asian region so southeast asia um, you know, typically, look, look, I guess, you know, companies that are still sort of developing, that are still, you know, building, they need sort of rebar. For flat steel products like hot roll coil, which goes more into to manufacturing, that's sort of, um, you know, a lot more, uh, lot more sort of dispersed. Uh, you know, I guess globally there's more going to like the U.S. and into Europe. And I think it's, it's that sort of product that, you know, you're getting quite a bit of sort of push pushback and, uh, you know, threats of trade barriers. And, you know, there are a few sort of anti-dumping investigations going on. There's some going on in, in Europe and, you know, in the US. And, you know, some places like India, they're, they're trying to sort of respond by lifting import tariffs and things like that. So, yeah, so the flat steel products tend to, there's much more uh, diversity in where they end up, whereas the sort of long construction steels still very much, you know, more Asia-focused. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So we, we can see that uh, at least there is some development, some growth in those markets, even though there may be a, a bit of pushback. Anyway, Paul, thanks very much for speaking to us again. Uh, that's Paul Bartholomew, Managing Editor of Platts Research in Australia, talking to us about steel. Uh, just a quick announcement from the Transport Department. Um, he said, due to traffic accident, lane number one and two of Tumun Road in uh, Kowloon, which is going for the Samcheng interchange, are close to all traffic. Remaining lanes are still available to motorists. Traffic use on Tumun Road, uh, Kowloon bound ends at Sulam, uh, are, are quite long. Motorists are advised to use alternative routes. Traffic is very congested and motorists are advised to drive with utmost care and patience and pay attention to TV and radio announcements on traffic conditions. To protect public health, tobacco control inspectors issue fixed penalty notices to people smoking in no-smoking areas. If offenders refuse to provide proof of identity and the required information, the maximum penalty is $10,000. Consider our health and quit smoking now. Take action and call the Department of Health Integrated Smoking Cessation Hotline on 1833-183.
Oh, well, that's the sound of space from the film Gravity. Space is still an attraction, despite the US government largely pulling away, for, except for military purposes. If you, we see Virgin Galactica, uh, Richard Branson's group, looking to take passengers into space. Stories about Google's moonshots, uh, their speculative projects, um, are also talking about uh, elements in space. And one of the things is the use of small satellites for telecommunications. And to give us the lowdown on that, we're speaking today to Professor Stephen Freeland, uh, who's Professor of International Law at the University of Western Sydney. Good morning, Steve. Morning, Richard. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Um, small satellites, tell us what Google's plan is. Well, small satellites, uh, I liken them to uh, the mobile telephones of space. They have the potential to revolutionise the way we use satellite technology. And companies like uh, Google, Face, Facebook, uh, SpaceX are planning, or, and, uh, and still planning, um, large constellations of small satellites at relatively low Earth orbits, the plan being, amongst others, to essentially have global internet coverage because uh, they, they say that uh, some two-thirds of the globe is still not uh, subject to continuous internet coverage. Mm. So that's the plan. Yes. And uh, what sort of timescale are we looking at? Presumably it's very much experimental. I mean, have we had, any, uh, have we had any, uh, some of these small satellites already placed into space on a testing basis? Oh, yes, we have. We've, we've certainly had um, a number of these companies and some much smaller entrepreneurial uh, groups uh, launching small satellites for a whole variety of purposes, um, including looking at uh, Internet facilities, um, already for quite some years, three or four years. What's going to happen, though, is if these plans do move to fruition, we're going to see, and pardon the pun, we're going to see an explosion of uh, new uh, launches of large constellations over the next five to ten years. And that, whilst it brings uh, the possibility of great commercial ventures, it also raises a whole range of regulatory issues. Well, that that's right, because you're going to see them all banging into each other, presumably. Well, space is a big place, of course, but what we're doing with these plans, and, and they still are plans to a large degree because the business case still has to be proven, but what we're doing is you're placing large numbers of uh, objects uh, in very popular orbits. And um, even though space is a large place, um, obviously, the more you put there, and they're all moving at uh, tremendous speeds, so any collision would cause a great impact and, and destruction. Um, of course, you just make uh, the possibility of collisions um, increase all the time, and we just have to be careful about how we regulate all of this. Yes, because we've also got the issue of space junk too, because um, as we saw in the film Gravity, as small particles of um, uh, flying around in space could do enormous damage to these very expensive facets. Oh, absolutely. I mean, anything in space, on which orbit it is, but then it, it's moving at, you know, tens of thousands of kilometres an hour. So any collision of um, between two space objects, and we call them conjunctions, any conjunction um, would lead to catastrophic, catastrophic damage on part of those. And if you're talking about at least one of those satellites being a large object, then, of course, through the conjunction, you create other pieces of debris. And so there is the possibility of a cascading effect. Space debris and space junk probably represents the biggest challenge to 
to our future use of space. And um, obviously there's a lot of technological development in terms of how we deal with that. But the costs are tremendous. And the international community is not yet prepared to accept responsibility for who should clean it up. So what we do is we have UN measures in place. They're all voluntary. And they're on the basis of mitigation, that is, lowering the future rate of pollution. But, of course, that means we're still going to add to the pollution in space. And it just becomes an issue that we have to be very conscious of. Uh, the answers are not there yet as to how we'll be able to actually alleviate the problem to, uh, to a successful degree. Yes, because we've got this kind of government-to-government -government, um, talk. But what about government-to-private? I suppose there's the same issue with drones, is that, uh, you know, the aerospace is, is limited by government. And now with an explosion of drones, um, of course, this is not at the altitudes you look at. There's the same sort of thing, is how are we going to actually get government-to-government -to, -government to talk and then private sector-to-private -private sector to talk and then all of them with each other? Absolutely. I mean, it's a classic example, the drones and also the small satellites of the technology racing ahead of the law. And so existing regulation at either the international or the national level um, has thus far not been geared towards trying to regulate this new type of technology, which is that many more people are able to use space or use drones, and yet the regulatory framework is not there. And in the end, at both the international and more particularly at the national level, it becomes a policy decision because governments will have to decide how and to what extent you balance the inherent risks, because there are always risks associated with this new technology, with obviously the wish to encourage entrepreneurship and innovation and clearly encourage commercial opportunity and different countries will have different views as to where the appropriate balance lies yes uh, it's an interesting debate it, it certainly is and uh, the commercial exploitation is clearly going to continue pace well much appreciate that steve uh, that's stephen freeland professor of international law at the university of western sydney um uh, william just before we go do you follow china at all and china's exploits in space where do you think is China focusing more military rather than commercial, I guess? Um, I think both. Uh, if you look at the benefit, uh, actually, um, as I mentioned, Alibaba's half of the sales is mobile com communication. So um, it would be good for the you know uh, retail or mobile gaming sector, everyone doing e-commerce. It's only going to increase demand. Well, thank you very much, William, for joining us today. William Ma, Chief Investment Officer of Gotex Penjing Asset Management. And um, just before we go, uh, the markets today are opening slightly up, really a reflection of what happened uh, on the street last night. Nikkei's up about 0.6, uh, 20,928. Australia's up about a fifth, and Seoul is up about half a percent. Um, well, thank you for joining us on Money for Nothing today. Shout to Sandra Lamb, who's our producer. And now we'll just close with the weather, which will be mainly cloudy with showers, with isolated thunderstorms in the morning. The maximum temperature will be 31 degrees. Uh, the outlook is brighter tomorrow, more showery again in the latter part of the week. Temperature at the observatory, 28 degrees Celsius, and the relative humidity, 87%. And now the news, read by Judd Boas. Police have arrested Hui Ming Shun, the founder of the now-defunct furniture chain store DSC, along with his wife at the Shun Tak Ferry Terminal. They're suspected of conspiracy to defraud following complaints to police from the store's suppliers. The two disappeared after the chain abruptly closed last week.
There's growing anger over the government's decision to chop down four healthy banyan trees on Bonham Road after one fell nearby uh, recently. John Batten is the convener of the Central and Western Concern Group. Uh, it certainly could have been measures to strengthen the trees by putting supports up or around, around them. And there are other examples of that along Bonham Road. If you go um, towards the Medical Sciences Museum, there's a wall tree that has a similar structure there, a sort of iron structure holding it up. If you go to Happy Valley, um, around the back of the, 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 the race course, you'll see uh, supports also being put up. Um, if you go to Kowloon Park, there's, there's one tree there that has a, a concrete support under it. So, you know, it's not like the highways department doesn't know how to react to this, this sort of problem. Police say a 73-year-old classical singer has been tricked into sending $20 million to a mainland account. It's the latest and biggest in a growing number of such cases. Police say the amount of money involved in telephone scams has increased almost sevenfold in the first seven months of this year. Mainland authorities have ordered a state broadcaster to punish a popular TV celebrity for insulting Mao Zedong at a private dinner. Bi Fujian was a talent show host on China Central Television when a video circulated in April.